Welcome to A Brief Chat. I'm Jason Crane. Thanks so much for being here. Another month, another fabulous guest. You can also get extra content when you become a Patreon subscriber. You can do that at patreon.com slash a brief chat. At the $1 level, you get a weekly email from me. And at the $5 level, you get that plus a bonus episode every month. So please do that if you would. And thanks to everybody who's already done it. You guys are awesome. So uh, if you have known me for more than about five minutes, you know that I am a massive fan of the book Moby Dick. And I saw that there was a new edition coming out this year, which I immediately pre-ordered. And then in uh, living where I was living before I came back to Pennsylvania, uh, I was in the place where the book was written and also my hometown. And I saw that the person who did the intro to the new edition was going to be there. And so I went and then a gentleman walked in front of me who... I immediately recognized and knew from a bookstore that I used to manage uh, in State College, Pennsylvania. And I said, what are you doing here? And he said, oh, that's my wife. And so I learned in that moment, uh, first of all, that the person who had written the intro actually was from the town where I had spent the previous seven years. And so that gives me the opportunity to welcome Hester Blum, professor of English at Penn State, to the show. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks so much, Jason. It's a delight to talk with you. It's great to have you. Um, I guess the first question, and maybe the question that a lot of people would ask, is why are there still new editions of Moby Dick being published? What, what do we still have to learn? And we'll get into some specifics of what you've written about in your introduction, but why do they keep making them anyway? Well, on the most basic level, one thing I have discovered that it was easy to forget in the years that I've spent as an English professor is that to the public, a new edition of Moby Dick might seem to be a new version of Moby Dick, as if I had rewritten it or changed the <laughs> sure. ending or changed the text in some way. And I just, this is something that has come up in other contexts. And so for new editions, which are not changing in any substantive way the text of the book itself. But why someone might want a new edition is because of the what we call the scholarly apparatus around it, but which basically means the introduction, the notes, the guidelines for reading that help a reader's experience of the book. And because readers change with every generation, with every micro generation, it's always helpful and useful to have a, a refresh or a reset of that kind of context for a reader, what a reader encounters when they're coming to reading a book. This is a book that you know very intimately. So when you're trying to create that kind of fresh experience, how did you approach it with any kind of fresh eyes to do that? Some of that freshness comes because I read the book once or twice a year and have for at least 25 years now. Um, so and it's a book that rewards that kind of rereading. And I always discover something that I can't believe I ever noticed before. Um, but part of that sense of the freshness that was necessary was getting a sense of how my students are responding to the book and how my um, pr professorial colleagues and I talk about the book and how we find it silly and <laughs> ribald and um, deeply weird. And having a sense that a lot of the introductions for editions of the book that are aimed at general readers, at student readers, don't really convey some of those elements. So everybody knows that Moby Dick is a kind of ponderous novel that asks a lot of big questions, doesn't resolve very many of them, and challenges the reader. But it was clear to me through these conversations, both in the classroom and out of it, is that not enough people know how weird and funny the book is. And so that was one of the goals of this edition was to talk about the weirdness and the humor, but also talk about why a, a contemporary reader might be interested in this 
now, you know, 170 plus year old book. The humor is so key. I, I have, you know, kind of evangelized for this book uh, because I, like you, read it most years. And whenever I tell friends, oh, you, you know, you should check this out. I'm reading it again. You should check it out. And I usually try to put in there, you know, if you if you know that it's funny, it really helps in the beginning, especially like it. It's pretty much well, the, we'll talk about what's the beginning. But in the narrative beginning, it's pretty comedic for the first chunk. Like, I think even the comedy holds up in the year 2022. And so I think if if folks can approach it, but. Obviously, you know, you can hold the door open with it or, you know, you prop up a quite a short table leg with it, that kind of thing. I totally get that. It's it's very terrifying to approach as a book. But I feel like if people can get into that idea of the comedy, it eases you in so nicely to the narrative. And yes, it gets deep and weird, but it starts in a pretty companionable way, I think. It does. And I think most not, most of Melville's novels do as well. They have a very accessible first quarter, first third of the book. And then at each, it really, in just about every novel, they they depart from recognizable forms. The tone changes somehow. And, you know, a lot of scholars have tried to justify on a novel by novel basis why it happens that this shift was made. Um, some people um, have said about Moby Dick that there's a point at which Melville reengages with a sustained reading of Shakespeare. And that's when the book gets really heavy and weighty which certainly makes sense and may not be wrong, but every other novel too starts off in this kind of conventional, funny, light way, and then the bottom falls out of it. So I, I don't think that there are um, traceable quirks that, um, or rather a way that Melville's stumbling into or out of form by design, or rather not by design. I, I, I feel like it's part of his kind of come on to a reader, which is to recognize that it's, you'll come so far with me, but will you continue once things get weird? Yes. Um, and, but so the, but the humor also, what, what's amazing about it too, is that again, for a lot of contemporary readers, finding things historically funny can be difficult because comedic tastes change. <laughs> There's a lot of comedic tastes changing happening right now, even in the world of contemporary popular culture. Um, and so thinking through or having an expectation of what it means to laugh at something written in 1851 versus right now my my kid is in high school and is in a production of Twelfth Night through the um, the high school thespians um, and just texted me a, a few minutes ago. They did a preview for the high school of Twelfth Night, which is one of Shakespeare's comedies and which is hilariously funny. And the student actors were nervous because in the first half, the audience was very quiet. But in the second half, they were dying of laughter because it takes a little time to kind of get used to what sure. historical comedy looks like. And so they were relieved that the laughter came, but it took a while for people to to get into that. So I think if you go in knowing like this is funny and it's silly, even though it's like capital S Shakespeare or capital M Moby Dick, it can help um, – prime you to not feel intimidated by what is to come. So uh, I made a reference to the narrative beginning of the book, and certainly uh, Call Me Ishmael is many, by, regarded by many as one of the most famous opening lines of any work. But in your talk and in your introduction, you make the point that it is not, in fact, the opening of the work, and that the fact that it is not, what precedes the narrative, is a, a real clue to what comes after in the narrative. Can you say something more about that? Yes, absolutely. And it's interesting to me on so many levels, because it's 
the line Call Me Ishmael is a tremendous line. It is justly famous. Um, it's this very strange invitation to intimacy for a reader, but that intimacy is somebody who's doesn't reveal his identity. We know nothing about Ishmael. We know very, very little throughout the course of the book, um, and it's certainly not at that opening. And it's not his name. It's a pseudonym. Um, somebody who invites you in, not to say, my name is Ishmael, to say, call me Ishmael. There's already both this intimacy and this distance. And so it makes sense that that is a, an entry point for readers. And also, you know, a lot of readers skip the introductory materials to books. Um, whether because they think it's not aimed at them or it's not relevant. Uh, when I teach Moby Dick, I don't instruct my students in advance, make sure you read the etymology and extracts because I want to see if it's something that they do on their own. And very few do. And that's the case, again, with a lot of books that I teach, in part because, you know, for a lot of people telling the difference between what's the author's introduction and an introduction that's been made by an editor, you know, like me or some other textual editor can be hard to to tell. Um, so on the one hand, I think it's just interesting how readers, what they think of as the work, as the book. They'll look at the cover and make judgments. You know, we have the, the longstanding idiom about not judging a book by its cover, but people recognize that a cover is part of the book in some way, sure. whether the author has chosen that image or not, which usually not. Um, but so I'm interested in the kind of material form of the book. What are the elements of the book? So that's one way in which I think the extracts and etymology um, are both interesting, but also often overlooked because they seem like the carrying case for what the story is. But I'm also particularly um, deeply interested in extracts and etymology because from the very beginning, they're giving definitions for what a whale is, but those definitions are totally unstable. The, <laughs> the word for whale, rendered in multiple languages. There's a lot of different ways to approach it. Not all of those translations are accurate ones. The pedants will tell you, and no one's more pedantic than I am about this book anyway. Um, and then in the series of extracts from other works of literature that mention whales, again, that are drawn from a huge range of texts um, and a huge range of literary traditions. Some are biblical, some are scientific, some are the kind of pot boilers of Melville's day. It instructs you from the beginning on how to read the book, and that is to read it wildly and heterogeneously and with a kind of diverse attention to what it can mean. From the very beginning, it's telling you there's no stable meaning in this book, but we're going to multiply possibilities of how it could mean. And again, these are things that can be off-putting or challenging for readers. And again, it's pedantic to tell someone like, no, you're wrong. The first line is not call me Ishmael. Um, although I do it all the time. I was going to say, in your talk, you asked us in the audience I, what the first line was. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> and people in a chorus. Yes. And I, I think a couple of people, and you may have been among them, were like, Did wait know. a minute. Yeah. yeah, yeah wait yeah. a minute. That's not the first line. Um, but uh, the – and so thinking of it as a kind of exercise in what we understand our entry point to the story, it's a lot – you would much rather be in conversation with someone who introduces themselves to you than someone who is reading dictionary definitions at you. Sure. Right? So the it makes sense why, again, it's not wrong to begin with Call Me Ishmael, but I do think that the extracts and etymology offer a clue to reading that this whole book is a kind of footnote in some ways on how you can define or not define or try to come to understanding of the words that we read 
I once purchased an edition of Moby Dick because I liked the cover design of a, some new edition that came out that did not have anything before Call Me Ishmael. Yeah, that's fairly common, be, um, especially because you know, once the novel's out of copyright, um, you can, people can do anything they want with it and often did even before that. But um, And there's some you know, kind of technical quirks in which the first uh, London edition of Moby Dick was printed um, without the extracts and etymology and the, um, or they were put at the end rather, and left off the epilogue, um, which radically changes the meaning of the book. Yes. Um, so there were, and that was, seems to have been an error, which was corrected in the American edition. So there's some historical textual stories about that that are interesting to trace if you're into that sort of thing. But it is certainly true that there are plenty of reprint editions that leave it off because either because they think that nobody cares or will notice it, or more likely, it's not thought to be part of the novel. Um, and, you know, part of what Moby Dick is suggesting all along is that novels don't look the way expectations would say they have to look. They're not necessarily a unified story that proceeds in a linear, progressive fashion. This novel doesn't really do that after a certain point. So it's common to not have those elements in the book. So you and I have an extremely different background where Moby Dick is concerned, not just because you teach it professionally, although that's a huge piece of it, but also because you have read Melville's other works. And I've never read a oh, word of Melville yeah. except Moby Dick every year for years. Interesting. And so not for any particular reason. Yeah. I just never have ventured any further. And so when I read your intro, well, particularly when I saw your talk, which I did before reading the intro, but it was based on the intro. Uh, when I read it, I got a glimpse into Melville's writing about sexuality mm. in particular mm -hmm. that I that I hadn't really thought of even having read the book many times before. And in particular, you said something that really jumped out at me, and uh, I'm, I'm just going to paraphrase, but that Melville himself wrote that he was in some way holding back or not not writing the, the fullness of the expression that he might have liked, but felt that there, he couldn't do that. And you touched on that and expounded on it in a way that left me, frankly, pretty amazed. And so I wonder if you could say something about that. Yeah, I think the line you're probably referring to is in a letter he wrote to Hawthorne um, in which he says that what I feel most moved to write, it is banned. It will not pay. But write the other way, I cannot. So all my books are botches. That's more or less the line. I've, I've dropped a couple words there. Um, and it's unclear in that letter what is banned about what he feels most moved to write. Um, there are certainly aspects of 19th century censorship or sense of propriety um, that could involve his persistent critiques of Christianity on the one hand. Um, but in the context both of his letters to Hawthorne, which have to be read as love letters, um, and the edition um, that I edited includes a number of those letters of a very intense friendship um, that we have the Melville part of that correspondence because Hawthorne saved the letters. Um, we do not have Hawthorne's responses to Melville. Melville tended to burn the correspondence that he received. But it's a very um, an exceptionally intimate and beautiful and aching and deeply sad account of someone who feels a kind of intellectual fervor and passion 
and love. And it's there's a playfulness in those letters that is not glimpsed in any of others, really, of Mevel's correspondence, certainly not to the wife that he was abusive to um, or the family that he was abusive to. And throughout his novels, virtually all the novels have scenes of homoeroticism between men, um, usually scenes that can be read as scenes of masturbation and usually mutual masturbation. Um, and there are a number of references um, throughout the novels to a kind of sense that um, married life, heterosexual life, not a term Melville himself would use, but um, in Moby Dick, there's a line in the, the erotic squeeze of the hand chapter when the men are squeezing sperm that is one of the more explicit of the masturbatory scenes in Melville's novels where Melville, as Ishmael writes, would that I could keep squeezing that sperm forever, and then goes on to say, but he has learned that he has to lower his conceit of attainable felicity, lower his standard of happiness, and instead place it in the wife and the home and the saddle. And so there's a sense of how straight domestic life is ruinous and deadening, and that there is a kind of liberatory queer potential in being at sea, there's lots of violence, too. That's certainly a big part of it. But um, throughout the books, we have a glimpse of what um, the, the great critic James Creech called um, an imagining of Melville's ideal secret reader, the one that he's trying to hail through his texts and can't quite um, manage to address directly, both because of what he calls in Billy Budd, which is another... Um, text that has been very available for queer readings um, in the conflict that Billy Budd has with uh, the master at arms, this man named Claggart. Um, there's a line that says that Claggart could have loved Billy, but for fate and ban. Um, and again, there's lots of ways to read that line, but there's a kind of consistent through line in which um, Melville's own queerness in whatever form it took expresses itself through a sense of the world that um, finds what we would call heterosexual union to be deadening and ruinous. Um, and it can be seen possibly most visibly in his one domestic sentimental novel, which is called Pierre, and which is probably one of the least lesser read of his works, although it has a cult following among uh, academics. We're all obsessed with it, um, which is an incest story in which a young man named Pierre engages in sexual or quasi-sexual or implied sexual relationships with his mother, his sister, his male cousin, um, his a portrait of his father, um, basically everyone except his female fiance, who he then later pretends is his cousin. <laughs> so it's it, it's wild. It's a wild book. Um, and it's, it's quietly adds to reading. Yeah. Oh no. Yeah, re thank you. I mean, it's it's difficult and weird, but it is wild. Um, there are just just it's just a crazy, amazing book, which you know many have seen as Melville, um, either his attempt to write a novel calculated for popularity, and then just saying fuck it, I'm not, I'm not going to do it. I can't do it. I don't want to do it, or satirizing what the kind of standard. Um, sentimental and domestic novel in the 19th century in which you marriage is to keep things within the family. You're consolidating family strengths. And so in so many marriage novels of the 19th century, the children, the, you know, often a female child 
um, grows up to marry someone who's been raised as a sibling or actually is a cousin. I mean, this is very common. That's what marriage is supposed to do is consolidate those relations. And Melville's like, you want <laughs> you want to see what I can do with that? <laughs> so anyway, the the uh, I think that for students and certainly the, all of the professors I know who are teaching and working with Melville today, um, the the queerness of these books is inescapable. And students are, tend to be kind of surprised by it. And at first they're like, am I reading too much into this? And which I think is, you know, reading too much into things is the entire point of taking classes in English. <laughs> Actually, that's a perfect segue. I, I want to, uh, in a moment, move on to talk about you. Uh, but I do have one last question about this. In your introduction, you also talk about, for example, ways of looking at the uh, possible environmental readings of the book. Mm -hmm. And you say in the introduction, you know, these, while these might not have been things, and I'm really paraphrasing, but while these might not have been things that Melville was explicitly writing about, you know, looked at from our lens. And it's that question, and again, understanding that this is not a seven-hour podcast, and this is way too big a question. But how how do we, I get this as an entire branch of scholarship, how do we deal with the fact that we're still reading this book in 2022 or in 2052 or in 3022 and the world has changed greatly and we can't help but read these words with our own eyes and our own brains? How how are we called upon, if at all, to deal with that fact? And I know that's a massive question, but any even a small insight into that would be would be great. Just to clarify, you mean how do we deal with the fact that the of keeping the novel relevant for each generation of readers or specifically or is with that even environmental our, degradation no yeah. just yeah generally speaking like is that even our task i mean for example right, we right. can read environmental messages into it that even if we know they weren't there are are we supposed to and i'm this biggest scare quotes in the world around uh -huh. the phrase supposed to but uh, okay, that yeah that makes sense so i i don't think it's possible to read um, objectively. We always bring our subject position, our experience, our identity into that reading practice. Um, various reading practices try to create some kinds of distancing from that. So I don't think it's possible to read out of time. And I also don't think either that um, the that any text that's produced is independent of that context. One of the things that I try to do in this introduction, but try to do in my work more generally, is to um, subvert any sense of transcendent greatness that transcends time, um, because that is a, an idea that's done a lot of damage. It's not true in many, many ways. The It's artificially created under different contexts, and and it's also based on the suppression of countless voices um, from that kind of history. So I'm, I have no interest in calling the book transcendently great in the sense that it can always speak to readers of every new generation. The book does speak to new readers of every generation, but not because of some kind of transcendence or something that is out of time um, or that is not related quite explicitly to the conditions of its production and its author's subject position. So I think the challenge always is to be attentive to what we as readers bring to our reading and to what our sympathies are, and to also try to do what literature ideally does, which is allows you to imagine a world otherwise. Um, it, literature can confirm the world that you see in front of you, but it can also help you to imagine how to be otherwise, um, or how things were otherwise. And so the in, you know, some books do a, are more available for those 
new generations of readers than others, when we say that something hasn't aged well, um, that's usually because it's hard to overcome either the biases or the style or the tone or the mood of something. Um, Moby Dick's a particularly elastic text for keeping such things alive and because in part because it's so sprawling and ridiculous right. and <laughs> talks really about everything. Um, and but while still being a book that um, you know almost never mentions women at all, like there there are a lot of gaps and absences in it, but it doesn't mean that it forecloses possibility of keeping that alive. Um, again, some texts are more available for that kind of work than others, and I think the the way that something stays fresh and alive is if we can use it both to study and understand um, worlds that have been, but also a finding ways to imagine relations and um, and futures that can be kind of created out of those texts. It, it's all, these are all fantasies that get called into being through words um, that, again, actions either back up or they don't. But um, part of the, the joy of teaching literature is for what it can um, allow a reader to imagine about the world that they are moving through and ideally having some impact on. Well, thank you for tackling that ridiculous question with a, <laughs> a concise answer. Um, so we're we're sitting in uh, your office on a university campus, and uh, I I think a lot of people might think that the kind of people who teach books like Moby Dick spend all their time in places like this. But you are the well, the, either the antithesis, I guess, of an armchair scholar. <laughs> um, and actually, the most distracting part of your talk when I saw you was when you said what you did for a living. Because as soon as you said, this is what I study and where I go to study it, I was like, okay, I'm going to pay attention to the rest of this talk. <laughs> but now I'm just realizing that was a career possibility that was apparently open at some point that I was unaware of. So uh, one of the things that you write about and study um, is – uh, the kind of the idea of polar exploration and how it's covered in literature. And you go to the places that are written about and you have your own first person experiences. And so I'm, I'm just curious about how you even started down that road. And even in the, the last, I don't know, six or eight months, you've, you've been gone a couple of times on adventures. So maybe we could kind of combine those things, how you got started thinking of these things, and then also how you're putting them into practice even now. Yes, and and I should say that um, I've been so extraordinarily lucky to be able to have done those travels, and they've all been relatively recent. They did not – I didn't have the opportunity to go to polar regions or to spend any sustained time at sea um, until relatively recently. I wrote two books about um, the maritime world and about history of polar exploration without having done that. Okay. And that is standard and typical for – literary academics and for most humanities academics, and no one would presume otherwise. I mean, I would occasionally get a question like, oh, are you a sailor? Is that why you're interested in this? And I'd say, no, no, no. Yeah. That's I, that's not my skill set. I'm a scholar. Um, but that has changed a lot lately. Um, and part of why it changed actually has to do with the history of whaling. Um, there's uh, one remaining 19th century wooden whale ship in the world, and it's called the Charles W. Morgan, and it's um, housed at uh, Mystic Seaport Museum in Connecticut, which is a tremendous nautical museum. And in 2014, the ship, the Morgan had been a museum ship for decades and decades, where it would, it was at the museum, you could go to it, you could walk on it, you could go below decks, um, but it was essentially a an exhibition ship. Am I right that it's the 
sister ship of the ship that Melville It is the sister on? ship okay. of Melville's ship, the Akushnet, okay. um, which he, you know, abandoned <laughs> right. um, because whaling is terrible. Um, <laughs> and uh, he jumped ship. Um, uh, there was one of – he jumped a different ship, but he uh, sure. but he was on the Akushnet, yes. Um, and he uh, – yeah, they were built in the same dockyard at the same time. Okay. Um, so almost an identical ship. And so the Morgan in 2014 was rehabilitated over the course of multiple years – and went on what they called um, the um, the eighty six voyage. Was it the forty six voyage? Why am I not remembering that? It's uh, <laughs> this is an embarrassing thirty the thirty eighth voyage. I'm transcribing the numbers. <laughs> it was the Morgan in twenty fourteen went on its thirty eighth voyage, um, which again this is now so many you know nearly. 170 years into its existence. So meaning that the first 37 were in the 19th century yes. and the 38th was in 2014. Yes. Okay. Yes. And the it hadn't sailed in 80 years at that point. So the last of its whaling voyages were in the early 20th century. Okay. Um, but it had been done 37 voyages and we were the 38th. And it was mostly a show voyage. I mean, we were, there were very short legs up through New England um, for the purpose of bringing more attention to the U.S.'s maritime heritage. Um, and thanks to an NEH grant, they brought a number of people aboard ship for these various legs that were writers and artists. Um, and I, w one, I got one of those spots. And so I was, again, on the ship for a day, essentially. But it made me realize, and it was astonishing to have done. And it, this was several years after my, a uh, number of years after my first book on um, American sailor narratives of that period had come out. And I knew that I had been an armchair scholar and that I didn't have that experience, but I thought that I knew enough that I would get it, that it would be cool to be part of and I would learn some stuff, but it wouldn't rock my experiential world. But it completely <laughs> wow. rocked my world. Um, and everything that I thought I knew, I had not inhabited in quite um, – which is, in, in hindsight, just feels dumb and naive because what I write about is how sailors' embodied experience of labor conditions their entire intellectual lives. That for sailors, the job site is also the home site. They're not off the job when they're at leisure. Their intellectual lives and their working lives are at the same place. And I knew that. But to see that in action blew my mind. And to see just how complete and total that was um was transformative and when not to interrupt you i'm sorry when sure. you say you were seeing it you were seeing it as embodied in the crew of this ship that yes. you were on okay. yes there was a the working crew um who were professional sailors professional tall ship masted wooden sailing ship sailors um, most of whom were working out of scandinavia where tall ship sailing is still a thing um mostly young half the crew were women um who were perfectly nice to us and tolerated us being on the ship as observers, but they were not there for our entertainment. Mm. And they were not there, they were not like museum workers who were recreating historically conditions. This was their job. And their job was interrupted, or their experience of being on the ship with us was constantly interrupted with doing the job. And seeing that in action and also realizing the truth of what Melville writes about at the beginning of Moby Dick, uh, when Ishmael says that he has to go to sea as a working sailor because passengers don't get to experience what he calls the universal thump of being in community and fellowship with people, which is also a violent thing. Like the universal thump is not 
necessarily good. Like you're getting knocked about in the world, but you're part of that community. And I felt outside of it because we weren't, as passengers, we were not part of that community. And that was dislocating for me. <laughs> and it made me want to imagine ways to inhabit that scene in a different way. And so I've, in the last few years, I've spent time, a number of times in the, the Arctic, both in the, um, what is called the Canadian Arctic in Nunavut in the Northwest Territories. I sailed through the Northwest Passage in an icebreaker. I just returned from three weeks in Svalbard at 80 degrees north in the Norwegian archipelago. I've been in the Swedish Arctic. Um, and in the in January of this year, I um, spent a few weeks in Antarctica on a cruise ship uh, that included Penn State alumni. Um, and what I've – all of which have been – <laughs> that is a diverse range of yeah. experiences. <laughs> yes, yes. And it's been exceptionally lucky. And it's it's very – and I'm one of the most privileged academic in the world. I'm a full professor at a major research university. I have research support here, which is what has enabled me to make these travels. But even so, they're exceptionally expensive and difficult. And not one of these trips has gone off without a hitch. There have always been challenges. It's not easy to travel to the polar regions. Um, it remains dangerous and unpredictable. And this was not work I could have done in a different place in my career or if I didn't have the privilege and status that I, I do now. Um, so that's one of the reasons why I've come to this relatively late. But also there's not a lot of precedent in, precedent in my field to do field work, which is a – field work is a concept that in the sciences is – in certain of the sciences is a given, you have to do it. And it's it, it's a, a not unproblematic term either, but I'm curious now to think about what it means to do a certain kind of field work as an English professor. Like how does how will my writing about the polar regions look or feel or be different now that I've done some travel there? And it's still relatively limited travel. I'm, you know, not by any stretch of the imagination, still <laughs> not a sailor, not a northerner, a tourist, really, but um, I do think that the work will be transformed by that experience, but I'm still figuring out how. Did traveling to the polar regions have a similar impact on you as being on the ship? Yes. Yes. No, I'm, I'm – uh, and most of that, a good portion of that is um, – has to do with the fact that um, – and it, this is part of what is changing the tenor of my work is that um, – the the northern arctic is been inhabited by indigenous people for thousands of years in a way that going to sea as a sailor which the sea does not sustain human life in any permanent way um often historically people who called themselves explorers have talked about the sea or the poles as equally remote and inhospitable to human life but that's simply not historically true the north while cold and harsh is not inhospitable to human life. Humans have lived there again for thousands of years. And so part of my transformation has been kind of looking deeply into um, understanding through Inuit studies and Inuit culture and being a novice listening and learning from these accounts is how some of the ways that I have myself thought about the polar regions in the past and certainly many of those of us who are not from the region um, have thought about it, has kind of 
thought about climate extremity in those terms, and I have come to realize that that is antithetical to an ethical or minimally decent human relation to those areas. So a, a big part of it is not um, not resting on what to many people seems the exoticism of my travels, which are again exotic and lucky um, in the for being someone who you know lives in Pennsylvania and as a, a white woman who grew up in New Jersey, definitely different, but not unthinkable and thinking through um, what that what effect that that kind of travel has had and whether it's travel that I should be doing at all is still a question environmentally. Um, culturally speaking, being a tourist in these regions is not a great position um, for environmental and cultural reasons. I did uh, I did a few episodes of this show a couple of years ago um, with some Sami mm. um, freedom fighters. Oh, awesome! Uh, and uh, and also a scholar who had written a book about their their struggle, particularly in the 20th century. And uh, I realized when reading the book and then when talking to these folks, it, it was as if reading that book was like someone said, here's a book about the actual civilization on Mars that you didn't realize existed until right now, except that it's not on Mars. Like exactly. You could get there in, in a day if you wanted to. It's on our own planet. And I realized I knew absolutely nothing. I mean, their very existence was news to me when that book arrived mm -hmm. on my doorstep from the publisher with whom I had done some interviews in the past. So that was a completely new experience for me. And then I had a chance to actually talk to, you know, a, a gentleman in his late 70s, early 80s who had been, you know, fighting for the liberation of these people yeah. that literally until a week before I'd never even heard of. Mm -hmm. And I think I extrapolate that out. I mean, I'm not I'm not unaware of how little I know, but I extrapolate that out to the globe that we're on and just think about how many of those stories are out there that Absolutely. will never cross Mm -hmm. my viewpoint and mm -hmm. yet our you know the life and death struggles of i mean this is it sounds like an incredibly trite and stupid thing to say but it was just it was very eye-opening to me to realize there are still parts of this world uh, with people who honestly look a lot like me yeah. who about whom i knew nothing and it was it was a pretty incredible experience to have no and and i'm 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 glad that i mean that sounds like a, a great experience to have and i've had similar ones repeatedly in the course of this work where the um, as much as I, you know, I, I read a lot, I think a lot, I know how to do research and, you know, the, this is a cliche, but the more I, I learn, the more I realize I don't know. But also it's really, especially listening to indigenous voices on this topic has really changed what I understand about learning and knowing and thinking of, for many scholars, for many people in academia, um, acquiring knowledge and using it and learning from it is a good and it's an uninterrogated good. It's not a problem. Why wouldn't you want more knowledge? Why wouldn't you want to use more knowledge? But in the context, especially of the Inuit, if you are learning this knowledge and you're using it in ways that don't help the community, then you are being extractive. You are taking and not giving, and it does a kind of cultural violence. Mm. It, not a kind of, it does cultural violence. It's a similar extraction to like taking oil and gas from a region or taking natural resources. It's a kind of intellectual colonialism. And that is something that I've come to learn and am wrestling with what that will mean for my work. Um, if that work goes on in those kinds of ways, it's just a fundamental shift in a relation to knowledge that um, 
getting as much information as possible and asking a lot of questions you know, 10 years ago, I would have thought was a sign of me being a good scholar and a good person, of trying to ask a lot of questions and learn more. I don't think that anymore. And it's because I'm listening to these accounts and realizing that it's not an unmediated good necessarily. Which is so, I mean, as a person who has been on the receiving end of things you've learned, uh, even in just in the course of hearing you talk and, and reading the introduction to Moby Dick that we were talking about earlier, I mean, the the idea that you will go places and learn things so that then I can learn about them when you write about them mm -hmm. seems like, well, that's how it's supposed to work. And yeah, I can understand how it would be fairly world-shaking if you started to think, yeah. oh, maybe this isn't how it's supposed no, to be. No, it's, it's absolutely true. And you know, there are lots of things that I've learned in the last couple of years of these travels that I won't talk about and shouldn't if I am a minimally decent human being. So that's, yeah, that, you that's know, again, nice. I don't know what the form of that, what that's going to take. Yeah. Um, and it, uh, it's also fine to have it go nowhere. I'm beginning to become more comfortable with. Yeah, that is a that sounds like a very very large lesson to have it's, learned or be learning. It's dislocating. Yeah. It and and but also um you know much like Moby Dick tells us uh, the history of extracting resources whether it's from whales or from humans uh, doesn't go so well. It's not sustainable. Yeah. Um and it leaves a lot of violence in its wake. So again, I I don't <laughs> I don't have any solutions for how to um approach those things on a broader scale, but the thinking through the structures that make it possible for me to travel to these regions and come back and be have stories to offer i'm trying to kind of put the brakes a bit on what those those stories how they might circulate and whether they should or not well, we've, we, I think we've opened up even more questions than we've answered in the course of this conversation, and that's what the best conversations do. Uh, my guest is Hester Blum, professor of English at Penn State, the editor of the latest edition of Moby Dick from Oxford World's Classics. Uh, it's been such a joy to me to get to hear the way you think, uh, both from the talk I saw, from the reading that I've done, and, and today. It's uh, Honestly, it's opened my eyes on a new way of looking at something that I already deeply love, and that's a pretty invaluable gift. So thank you, and thanks for being here. That's a uh deeply lovely to say and gratifying to hear. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure.